so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would fill your sanctuary. I'm picturing an earthen vessel, Lord, and you say that we're an earthen vessel, and you fill us with your spirit that's like oil. You fill that earthen vessel, and you set it on fire, even like a lamp. And Lord God, one day I know that the earthen vessel will be shattered, and we will be, uh, we will be joined, as we never thought possible before, with you and with each other. So Lord God, I pray that that would happen, that we would be uh, caught up in that, even this morning, that you would fill your sanctuary. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Isn't that a cool song? You know who wrote that song? Nicholas? Nate Bullis. Nope, not Nate Bullis. Um, Justin Bullis. Yeah, he wrote it uh, right after the church started based on a, a vision that someone had while they, were, while they were praying for us. Anyway, it's great to see you this morning. Just so you know, there are a few adult moments in the sermon, so if you haven't been through sex ed, I'm just telling you, it'll be interesting. And um, <laughs> so, Lord God, help us preach and be glorified in Jesus' name. In Matthew chapter 24, on the Mount of Olives, just after Jesus has prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, about three days before he's crucified, the disciples ask him three questions. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your parousia, your, your, your coming, and of the close of the age? At that, Jesus gives what's known as the Olivet Discourse, which has led to a whole lot of really kind of bizarre end times uh, speculation. 10 years ago, in 2005, I preached rather extensively on the Olivet Discourse from Matthew chapter 24. So if you're curious, you can go online and you can read those messages. But for now, I'll summarize. Parousia means something like effective presence. It was a technical term used for like the arrival of a dignitary or a ruler. Well, first Jesus then makes it clear that he will be coming to that generation and to those disciples that he's talking to. He says that they will see signs even in the heavens, one of which, according to Joel, was a blood moon, which appears to have occurred the night that Jesus was crucified, April 3rd, 33 A.D., according to astronomers. Well, I believe that the signs in the Olivet Discourse have all occurred almost 2,000 years ago, uh, all before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But then, in verse 36, Jesus says this. Concerning that day and that hour, not even the sun knows. That day and that hour is the close of the age, the end of the eon and the beginning of God's eon, the end of time as we know it when temporality is swallowed up, chronological time, temporality is swallowed up by eternity like a reverse big bang, if you will. Jesus says of that day, only the Father knows. Yet on that day, the Son of Man will come as well. Actually, it appears that the end of the age is the same moment as the end of your age. The day you die. The day you die, Jesus comes, parousia. And that point is the boundary between chronological time and eternity. That's why in Matthew 26, 64, the day he's crucified, Jesus says this, from now on, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The day you die, you will see that. The question is, what will you do when you see that? In verse 40, 44, Jesus says, it, it will be at an hour y'all don't expect, <laughs> which means it probably won't be tonight because everybody's all worked up over the super blood moon and the Pope and Yom Kippur. Verse 43, Jesus says that it will be uh, like the coming of a thief in the night. Verse 37, he says it will be like in the days of Noah. You know, in the days of Noah, the judgment came as a flood of water. But all scripture testifies that one day, that day, the last day, judgment will come as a flood of something else. Numbers 14, 21, God swears to Moses, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. 
Habakkuk 2.14 and a whole bunch of other verses. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As the waters cover the sea. 2 Peter 3 makes this clear. Verse 10, the Lord will come like a thief in the night and the earth, not only will the earth be flooded with water, the earth will be flooded with fire. Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water. But the one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Or it can be translated, the Holy Spirit that is fire. Scripture's clear. Our God is a consuming fire, and he will fill all things. To baptize literally means to immerse. Well, as in the days of Noah, once again the earth will be flooded, but not with water, with knowledge and glory and light and the fire that is God. The earth will be flooded. And that just makes me wonder, what would, be that, what would that be, be, be like for, for a guy like this? I wish, I wish, I wish I were a fish, cause fishes have a better life than people. They don't have all the care and strife of people. A fish can swim, that's all they ask of him. He flirts with every lady fish as she goes swimming by. And if she gives her tail a swish and winks a fishy eye, a minnow all at once can be a whale of a guy. I wish, I wish I were a fish. Henry, the water! Oh, what a mess! I wish. I wish I were a fish. my favorite movie as a kid. And, and we had a fish tank in our house. And when life was really, maybe you remember it, Alan, it was in the kitchen. When life was really stressful, I'd sit there and just stare at the fish tank and dream of what would it be like to live in another world, another world. Well, Henry Limpet keeps the sea in a tank in his house and dreams of being a fish. But on that day, he, he no longer controls a bit of the sea. He's immersed in the sea and becomes what he always and most truly was, a big fish. Now, if you watch the movie, it goes on to save the world from the Nazis or something, I can't, I can't remember. But the Jews kept God in a tank, or at least they thought they kept God in a tank in their city, and some, maybe all, dreamed of what it would be like. I mean, they seemed to think they kept him. Some thought, he, but they dreamed, what would, it be, what would it be like to enter the Holy of Holies behind the veil and stand in the presence of the Lord, Yahweh, I am that I am. Well, in Matthew 24, Jesus prophesies the destruction of that, that tank, that temple and he talks to his disciples about all of these things and of course they're just fools and they don't get it but then he starts telling stories chapter 25 verse 1 he tells a story that we're looking at today a story that seems to just well really it just mystifies just about every modern evangelical protestant commentator J jesus says this then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise, phronimos, from phroneo, to think. In other words, better translation, probably they were thoughtful. 
Five, five were thoughtful and five were foolish. Fool is moros, from which we get our English word mystified. Five were mystified, they were foolish virgins. Now it's important to understand that when the scripture says that, that word virgin, it means virgin. That's what it means. It doesn't mean bridesmaid, as some modern translations try to turn it into. It doesn't mean bridesmaid or young girl. It means someone that has not experienced the intimate communion between a man and a woman that God designed to be experienced in the sanctuary of the covenant of marriage. That's a virgin. The word occurs 14 times in the New Testament. Looked it up. 12 of those times, it's obvious that it's referring to a young woman that has not had sex. One of those times, Revelation 14, 4, is, refers to, to young men that are being prepared for holy war, because I guess that kind of makes them all ticked off and ready to kill somebody or something. And then one last time, it refers to you. you say, hey, wait a minute, Peter, I'm, I'm not a virgin. Well, according to the Apostle Paul, maybe you are. You have not yet fully experienced the kind of intimate communion that occurs within the sanctuary of the covenant, the holy of holies, behind the veil. In the second century, Rabbi Akiva taught that the Song of Solomon is the Holy of Holies. Song of Solomon 8, verse 6, reads like this. Love is strong as death. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of Yahweh. <laughs> what if that's behind the veil? Well, in the first century, right into the Corinthians, who, by the way, of all people in the Bible you would least tend to think of as virgins, uh, Rabbi Paul wrote the following. I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, you might be catching on to what Jesus and Paul seem to be saying, and you might be thinking to yourself, <laughs> Peter, that, that's polygamy. Well, it would seem that way, wouldn't it? And it's interesting to note that polygamy is never really condemned in Scripture, not outright. Monogamy is held up as the ideal. It, it, would, it would seem that way, seem like polygamy, and yet it's not that way if the ten are somehow one, and listen to how Paul phrases this. I betrothed you to one husband to present you, and that's plural, to present y'all is, is the more accurate translation from the Greek, to present y'all as a, that's singular, pure virgin. Like y'all are one body and one bride. Whatever the case, virgin does not mean bridesmaid. And you see, there's a big difference between being a bride and being a bridesmaid. Why? Because a bridesmaid can afford to be foolish moronic, mystified, but not the bride. She's about to enter the bridal chamber with the groom. Verse three, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the thoughtful, the wise, took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, kronizo, from, from kronos, which, which means time, kronizo, like spend time, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and, and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out and meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, say, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go, rather, to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. So five were taken, and five were left behind outside the door in the darkness, the door to the wedding. Gamus is, is a Greek word translated wedding or marriage. It's literally translated marriages in the plural, which in that culture oftentimes referred to the marriage festivities or the marriage feast. Uh, not just the marriage, but also the marriage feast. Well, in Jesus' day, you see a couple would not have a, uh, get married, have a big party, and then jet off to Hawaii for their honeymoon. They would have a little private quick party, and then they would enter the bridal chamber, uh, shut the door, consummate 
their wedding, speak to the friend of the bridegroom who would yell to the party, and then the festivities would begin. And sometimes they'd last for a week, and then they'd go back and forth into the bridal chamber where they would do their own little uh, celebrating, and, and that, was a, that was what a wedding meant. Verse 10, and while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, those who were ready went in with him to the marriages, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Notice that he does not say, I'm going to subject you to a living death of endless torment, you low-life trollops. He doesn't say that, no. He doesn't even seem to get mad. He just says, I don't know you. Actually, even more literally, he says, I don't see you. So all we know about what happens next to these foolish virgins is that they'll have to spend some more time in the darkness where they already are because they're not ready. They haven't spent any time in the dark looking for the bridegroom. And I hope you realize that there's no good reason to believe that the door can never be opened again, especially when we read in the Revelation that the gates of the New Jerusalem are never shut by day and it's never night in the eternal city. Verse 11, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't see you. Watch, therefore, says Jesus, watch. For you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Watch, seek, hope, look, look for. So, 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 okay, then what's the point of the story of the foolish virgins? Is it just try to be a little more neurotic and remember to put oil in your lamps? Buy batteries for the great tribulation. Is, is that the point? What's the point of the story of the foolish virgins. Well, I think it would be smart to stop and think for a minute about what a foolish virgin is. I think I have a picture of some foolish virgins. Actually, the one in the middle, I think, was most foolish. That's my daughter, Becky. And uh, this is Becky a couple of years later. When she was this age, like every day I'd come home from work, she'd come running to the door, and she always wanted to play Pretty Pretty Princess. This is the cover of the Pretty Pretty Princess game. The idea is that you spin a spinner and you win all of these uh, accoutrements, these accoutrements necessary to turn you into a princess or a bride. It has absolutely nothing to do with a prince. <laughs> I, think I, spent, I think I spent most of my time looking like this guy, found that online somewhere, looking like a, a, a princess. And, and the only movies I got to watch in those days were movies like The Little Mermaid, spent a lot of time watching that, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, Snow White. Each of these movies is about a princess. And in each of the movies, um, there is a prince to be wed, but the prince is really just an accoutrement. <laughs> In order to turn a young girl into a princess or a bride, I mean, just look at that picture, just look at it. The prince only exists like in the orbit of the princess. All, all of these things orbiting around her and one of them is, is the prince. He's like a fish that she keeps in her house, in, in a tank, her pet. See, see, I think a foolish virgin must be a princess that thinks the marriage is all about her. A, a bride who's totally into dressing herself up in beautiful gowns and all sorts of finery, who's thoroughly in love with the pageantry and the ceremony, but has absolutely no clue what it is that the bridegroom really wants. Now hear me very well. We are all born as foolish virgins. And it's absolutely imperative that we remain foolish virgins as children. That's the way God designed it. 
And yet it's also imperative that a foolish virgin becomes a wise virgin before she enters the bridal chamber and becomes a bride. So you see, it was, it was adorable, right, and good when Becky would play Pretty, Pretty Princess. But it's not adorable, right, and good when a 22-year-old woman plays Pretty, Pretty Princess on the day of her wedding. And yet many do. Trust me, I know. I'm, I'm a pastor. I do these weddings and then counsel people afterwards. Women, men too, they often get married because, well, they love the idea of being married. But they don't love the one that they're marrying. Some brides love the idea of being married and don't have a clue as to what it is the bridegroom wants. One friend, utterly broken, I remember saying with him in his car years ago, just in shatters, leaving his bride, saying to me, Peter, it was three days till she even let me make love to her after our wedding. Another, another friend, uh, married over 10 years, and he said uh, the, the, the only consummated their marriage like four or five times. See, that's not just sad. That's evil. But I don't want to blame those brides as if they were evil. I would guess that they have been lied to by evil. You see, there's a reason Satan works so hard to lie to us about sexuality. There's a reason that he tempts people to promiscuity and all sorts of uh, distorted sexual activity. It's because God made us male and female. So a man would lead, leave his parents and be joined to his bride, cleave to his bride, and the two would become one flesh. And this communion refers to Christ and the church. Ephesians 5.32. See, if Satan can get you to believe a lie about sex and marriage, he's gotten you to believe a lie about Jesus, the great bridegroom. Well, anyway, as I was saying, a foolish virgin must be someone that thinks a marriage is all about cake and dresses and pretty churches. A foolish virgin is a girl that thinks a marriage is all about her, that, that a marriage is all about dressing up while not having a clue as to what it is the bridegroom really wants. In fact, she'd be utterly offended upon discovering what it is that the bridegroom really wants. And don't get me wrong, he has nothing against cake and ceremonies and pretty churches and dressing up. It's just that once she enters that chamber and he shuts the door, he plans to strip her of all her accoutrements cover her naked body with his very self, and penetrate the very place that she has spent her entire lifetime covering up in shame. And if what I just said bothers you, maybe you just don't understand. You're a bit mystified as to what it is that the Son of Man wants. You thought he was a means with which you could gain control, as if he were an insurance policy, you know, or some kind of security system. You thought he was a means with which you could gain control, but the Holy of Holies is about surrendering control. It's about dying and rising. It's about losing your life and then finding. It's about letting go of the world that you possess, like a, a, a little tank of water that you hold in your house in a fishbowl. It's about letting go of the world you possess and then finding yourself immersed in a sea of love, a sea of love. So a foolish virgin is someone who, number one, really doesn't understand love, and God is love. And number two, really doesn't desire the truth about love. And Jesus is the truth about love. And number three, doesn't want to be loved in truth, that is, by Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, a foolish virgin doesn't want grace because grace meets you and touches you in your place of shame. That's why foolish virgins cover themselves in fig leaves and hide in the trees when grace comes to them wrapped in flesh and asks them to go for a walk in the garden, the Garden of Eden, and Eden means delight. Second Corinthians 11:2, Paul writes this, I feel a divine jealousy for you. 
Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, cunning, uh, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see, Eve was a foolish virgin because she did not trust that God was good. The serpent tempted her to complete herself uh, in the power of her own flesh, according to the knowledge of good and evil, with works of self-righteousness. Then she ended up covering her shame with fig leaves, hid herself in the trees, when the last Adam, her true husband, the word of God in flesh, wanted to go for a walk in the cool of the day in the garden of delight. Paul writes, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel, good news, from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. That's what Paul calls them. And the super apostles, uh, like the snake, were subtly teaching the Corinthians to compete with one another. Chapter 10, verse 12. Boast in their spiritual accomplishments. Chapter 10, 18. And to dress themselves in self-righteousness. And so Paul says, I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses that the power of Christ would rest on me. 12 verse 9. So the super apostles, they called Jesus Lord, but they acted just like the priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees that crucified the Lord. And they not only missed his coming, they crucified him on a tree in a garden outside the city because they perceived him to be a threat to their control, their religion, their temple, in which they thought they kept God like a fish in a fish tank, their fish tank. It's very, very important to remember that God calls Jerusalem his bride. And at the heart of Jerusalem was a temple. And inside the temple, 2 Chronicles 4, 7, there were 10 lampstands that held 10 lamps. The priests were commanded to never, ever, ever let those lamps go out because according to Leviticus 24, their purpose was to shed light on the veil of the testimony that covered the ark of the testimony which contained the law and was covered with the mercy seat on which the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur would sprinkle the blood of the lamb. Scripture claims that that veil is Christ's flesh. And when he died, it ripped from the top to the bottom. It broke as if God got out of his fish tank. Or maybe we got in like fish, dropped into the sea. Paul writes, in him we live and move and have our being like we swim in him. Just don't know it. Well, the tin lamps on the tin lampstands were to reveal that testimony, the testimony of mercy covering law with the blood of the lamb. The, the tin lamps were to reveal the love, the incredible love of the great bridegroom. In Jesus' day, lamps were usually an earthen vessel. And hey, we're like earthen vessels. Lamps were an earthen vessel like this that would be filled with oil. The oil would then be drawn up through a wick and transformed into fire and into light. The 10 virgins holding 10 lamps who go out to meet the bridegroom well, they all look the same from the outside. They appear to be the same. They even act the same. They all fall asleep, even though Jesus in the last paragraph said, don't fall asleep. They all, they all fall, fall asleep. The only difference is that while the five foolish virgins for, forget, the five wise virgins remember oil for their lamps. And why do they remember oil? Well, I doubt it's because they're better students. I doubt it's because they're more disciplined or more neurotic. I mean, after all, these are probably 13, 14-year-old girls in this picture that he's, they're all silly, okay? Uh, I bet it's because the five wise or the thoughtful were thinking about the bridegroom. They wanted him. The other five really aren't into the bridegroom. They're into what? 
with the ceremony. Just like the priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees were all into the temple, the rituals, and dressing themselves up, but what did they not want? The Lord. And so when he suddenly came to his temple that they thought was their temple, they were highly, highly, highly offended. And you see, that wasn't just a problem 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, and it wasn't just a problem 1,950 years ago in Corinth. That could be a problem right here, right now. I mean, hypothetically speaking, of course, hypothetically speaking, we could be something of a foolish virgin, like a princess who thinks the prince is, is all about her. And get this, he is all about her, but not in the way she thinks he's all about her. I mean, we could think worship is all about us. And we would then think that we were to be all about dressing ourselves up and rituals and programs and, and buildings. I mean, we could stress over leaving one building <laughs> and make an idol out of the next building. And don't get me wrong, princess. There's nothing wrong with fancy, beautiful, fine church buildings. Beautiful music, lovely dresses, and wedding cakes. Nothing wrong with that, unless that's the reason you're getting married. And then it's evil. The accoutrements are to help you want the groom. The building is not the one that you are to want or the thing that you are to desire, except that it is a thing that helps you desire Jesus, Jesus wants you to want him. And more than anything else, that's what this church needs. We need you to want him. So do that, okay? <laughs> How, how do you do that? By the grace of God, when Susan and I got married, after five and a half years of dating, technically, she was a virgin, but she wasn't a foolish virgin. She was wise. And by that, I don't simply mean that she was like horny or something, though I've got nothing against that. I, that's not what I mean. I mean that she, she didn't only want a cake. She didn't only want a dress, a ceremony, a house, security, some children. She wanted me. That's what I wanted. And how did that happen that she wanted me? Well, for five and a half years, I looked for her. And she looked for me. Our first year of college, I was in Boulder. She was in Durango. And, and I wrote letters. Back in those days, you had to do, write these things called letters. I wrote letters. And she'd, like, she'd read the letters and memorize the letters and just the letters, sleep with the letters. She'd cry on the letters. And we'd talk on the phone for hours and hours. And it cost a lot of money back in those days. We'd talk on the, on the phone. And then we'd meditate on each other day and night. And it was painful. It was a process. It took time. But in the separation, the pain, the longing, even the fighting, even the times we broke up and got back together, in all of that, desire grew. It grew. And I wasn't proud of that desire, as if it were my own accomplishment. I, I didn't think, gosh, I'm really great for wanting Susan so much. And she wasn't proud of that desire in her, as if it was her own accomplishment. If anything, she thought it was my accomplishment in her, that I was responsible for the oil in her lamp, the oil that turned to flame and caused her to look for me when her heart felt lost and lonely in the darkness. You know, in scripture, oil often represents the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus. And maybe that's why the wise virgins wouldn't share it with the foolish. We each must have our own relationship with Jesus, and we each can have our own relationship with Jesus. You cannot buy the Holy Spirit. That's the whole number of things we could get into here. You cannot buy the, the Holy Spirit, and yet Jesus says the Father will surely give the Holy Spirit to those that, that ask him. Oil often represented the presence of the Spirit, and the light, well, that's the glory of God. The light is Jesus, and he shines, he shines in the darkness. Actually, you see, he's already there in the darkness. It's his spirit that's with you even now in your earthen vessel. You're a temple, and you contain a holy place. 
And, and, and now, don't get me wrong, I don't mean that the parousia, what people call the second coming, has happened for you. He is yet to be revealed to you in that way, and yet he's present, and you can find him in the letters, that's scripture. You can find him in the phone calls, like in prayer. You can find him in the meditation. When you long for him, that is him. Even more than that, God is love, and Jesus is the truth, and truth in love is grace, and that's the plot of the whole story. Jesus is the logos. He's the meaning of the whole story, the love story. So when you see love and truth and grace uh, and meaning, and when you long... You're beginning, to, you're beginning to long for it. You're beginning to see Jesus. And his spirit is creating desire in you, faith in you. That's another way to say it. For he earnestly wants you. He earnestly wants you to want him. It's absolutely critical that you recognize him and want him. About 30 years ago, when Susan and I were newly married and living in a dangerous part of Los Angeles, I returned from a great distance late at night. It was three in the morning. I was driving from Northern California with my best friend Dave because he had received a, a phone call earlier in the evening at camp from his bride and she told him that, that she wanted a divorce. And so for six hours I drove with Dave through the middle of the night he was absolutely broken and I dropped him off at his place and then I went over to our place and I so wanted my bride. But it was three in the morning. I tried not to startle her. But trying not to startle a person at three in the morning makes you seem all that much more like a thief in the night. I remember thinking to myself, if only I could enter her dream world and communicate to her, communicate something like this. Oh, honey, 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 listen to me. I know, I know that right now I only seem like a thin whisper, a thin whisper in your dream, in your world, the world that you control. But in a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you will awaken. And when you awaken, you must know it's me, it's me. And I love you with everything I have and everything I am. But I didn't know how to do that. So I put the key in the lock, and I remember it made a noise. I opened the door, and then I heard this coming from uh, the inner room. I heard, oh, my God, oh, my God, who is it? Oh, my God, who's there? And, and in that instant, I knew that my bride thought that whoever opened that door was going to rape her. Remember, I just cried, oh, honey, 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 it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. And, and after I got her calmed down, which took a while, I undressed her, covered her with myself, entered her, and she received me with great delight. And we communed in the sanctuary of our covenant. And if that offends you, maybe you're a foolish virgin. Do you understand why it's absolutely critical that you wise up? The great bridegroom is coming, like a thief in the night, and he adores you, absolutely adores you. Well, in the few moments that it took Susan to recognize in my voice, she went from the reality of a foolish virgin on Judgment Day to the reality of a wise virgin on her honeymoon night. She went from hell to heaven. And it was a garden of delight. And maybe that's why the great bridegroom shuts the door. He refuses to rape foolish virgins. But oh, he, he will arrange for the destruction of your city. He will arrange for the destruction of even your temple. He'll even shut you in outer darkness and subject you to all manner of tribulation. But it's also that you would want him as he wants you because he is bound and determined not to rape you. 
I suppose we're all a bit foolish and a bit wise. Well, he says to the foolish virgins, he says, uh, that's why I can't use these things. He says to the foolish virgin, I don't see you. Maybe that's because the self that the foolish virgin is presenting is false, and the truth can't see the false, for it's an illusion and must be destroyed. Or has to be destroyed. Or, or, or maybe, maybe, maybe he says, I don't see you because they don't want to be seen, because they're ashamed, because they don't trust grace, and so have covered themselves in fig leaves and self-righteousness and all the trappings of a pretty, pretty princess. But Jesus doesn't want the pretty, pretty princess. He wants you, and he will wash you, and he will cover you with his own righteousness, and he will fill you with his very own life, and you will bear the fruit that is life. But first, you must want him. So he shuts the door on the foolish virgins. Now they're in the dark. Maybe they'll begin to long for the light. Maybe now they have oil in their lamps. Whatever the case, it's a horrid thing to be shut out in outer darkness to descend into death and Hades without knowing Jesus. And I earnestly hope it never happens to you or anyone that you know or anyone for that matter. Yet even if it did, that wouldn't necessarily mean that the story is over. In three days from the time that Jesus tells this story, Jerusalem the bride will cast him out into outer darkness. They will nail him to the tree outside the city, and as the sky grows black, he will descend into Hades, the deepest darkness. And as his flesh rips, the veil in the temple rips, and he delivers up his spirit. And that's when and, wh that's when and where we see him, isn't it? There. The light shines in the darkness. It shines on the testimony. Mercy covering law with the blood of the Lamb. It shines on the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. It shines on the great bridegroom. Jesus said it. When I be lifted up from this earth, and he was speaking of the manner in which he would die, I will draw, romance, all people unto myself. I have a friend who's part of our church. Had an amazing encounter with Jesus. She described it in a letter that she sent me years ago. I've shared it with you. Uh, she sent it to me right after I preached a sermon in which I talked about how much I longed to just one day commune with my dad. In the sermon I described how communion in the sacrament of the covenant of, of marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, and I wondered if in some way it also was a picture of what our relationships will be with, with each other one day in the kingdom, for we will all be one in Christ Jesus. And so I said something like this. I said, I sure don't want to have sex with my dad, I don't, but I would like to know him as I know my bride in those very best of moments when the veil is stripped away and we become one. I said, wouldn't it be cool if I could like just, you know, lean in to dad. Just lean in to dad and know him without any pretense, without any fear, without any shame. Well, this friend wrote and described how Jesus had appeared to her in this amazing experience, and at one point sat next to her on her bed, and then she writes this. Anyway, he leaned toward me and, well, like, went into me, leaned into me, just like you described it yesterday. He went right into me, and I was filled with a joy and a glory so overwhelming, I pulled away in shock. He just chuckled at me while I cried and apologized for freaking out. And he said, that's okay. We have time. I love that. We have time. I think that's why God made time. So that he could romance all us foolish virgins unto himself. Make us wise, then take us home. Make us his home, his garden of delight. God who is love and truth and grace. You see, God who is love and truth and grace is not a small thing. 
that you can forever keep in a little tank in your house as if he were a pet and you were not his. God is an ocean in which you will be immersed and in which you are destined to swim without protection. Love will cover you. Love will fill you and turn everything into delight, but love will not rape you. And so first, you must want him. And so, he is romancing you all the time. One of my all-time favorite movies is about a man named Ed Bloom. Ed Bloom and his son, Will Bloom. Ed Bloom is always thirsty. And he's always telling stories, fish stories. But Will Bloom thinks they're not true. Will Bloom only sees facts, but Ed Bloom sees the meaning in the facts. He sees the logos in the facts. He sees the story. Will Bloom would see a tall, insecure man. Ed Bloom would see a giant that needs a bigger town. Will Bloom just sees his mom. Ed Bloom sees a magical lady in the river and a big fish that can only be caught with a wedding ring. Ed Bloom knows the plot, and he wants Will Bloom to know him as well. Ed lies dying in a hospital bed, and he asks Will to tell him the story of how he's going to go, and this is what he says. So it's, uh, it's in the morning, and you and I are in the hospital, and I'm falling asleep in the chair, and I wake up, and I see you somehow. You're better. Dad? You're uh, different. Dad. Let's get out of here. And I say, Dad, you're in no condition. Get that wheelchair. Hurry up. We haven't much time. Once we get off this floor, we're in the clear. And uh, we get in the wheelchair. Faster! Like we're escaping from the hospital and... Well, what are you doing? Best Dr. Bennett, who tries to slow us down. Danny, stop them! We're flying down the hall. Orderly after orderly is chasing us. And Mom and Josephine are at the end of the hall. No time to explain. Stall them! out the front over the curb and your uh, old red charger is there but it's new brand new and i pick you up and somehow uh, you hardly weigh anything i can't explain it leave it we don't need it water i need water where are we going the river Girl in the river. Mm -hmm. 
You become what you always were. A very big fish. And that's how it happens. Exactly. The next scene is the very same scene. They're down by the river, and yet uh, all the colors are washed out. The people's clothes are more drab. It's Ed's funeral. The pastor says some words, and then they take Ed's body, and they drop it in the ground, and you wonder, which perspective was more true? Well, I love that movie. I think I love it so much because uh, right after I saw that movie, I was sitting by my father's bedside and we were alone and it was my last conversation with him. He, he couldn't breathe. He was drowning in pneumonia and I said, Dad, could I, I just want to pray for you. And I, I, I bent down and whispered in his ear, Father, would you please help Dad to know deep, deep down inside that he no longer needs to breathe air. He can breathe you. And he did. My, my, my dad kept looking at the corner. And you see what, what I was saying to him as he was drowning in the moanion, looking up in the corner. Dad, all you've told me all these years, all you've longed for, all that you gave your life meaning, the love, the truth, the grace, Jesus, you can exhale this world and inhale him. And he did. He kept looking up at the corner of the room as if someone was coming. And he did come. To this day, uncoached, my niece Elena, she was a little girl at the time. She has Down syndrome. To this day, she, she tells people, uncoached, I, Lydia sent me another incident where this happened. She tells them that was the day she saw Jesus come get Poppy, take him home. My dad is a big fish swimming in a sea of love. So anyway, there's a blood moon tonight, a super moon, a super, super blood moon. Yom Kippur was last Tuesday. Iran just, they very well might attack and invade Israel. The Pope is in Philadelphia tonight. But I don't think it's the end of the age. But wouldn't that be cool if it was? I mean, if that thought fills you with terror, Maybe you're a foolish virgin. And you need to wise up, bride of Christ. And so he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant, a marriage covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Hmm. It's kind of dark in this world, isn't it? Look, it's the great bridegroom. Come to his table, fill your tank, fill your lamp. In Jesus' name, want him. So come with me to the sea. I knew you were my pet. Oh, 
Okay, so who is saying, I want you to want me? Who's singing that song to you? Yeah, God, the Lord is singing that song to you. And, and I need you to need me. Technically, technically now, I don't know if that is absolutely theologically accurate that he needs us to need him, but this much is true. And, and I've been studying scripture for a long, long, long time and asking myself the question, God, what the rip are we doing here in this desert? Why did you throw us into the darkness like this? Why did you put a snake in the garden with the tree and two naked people that didn't know what the heck? Foolish virgins, God, why did, you, why did you do that? And I think this is the answer. He's saying to us, don't you understand? I want you to want me. And now if you're married or in your, you're in a relationship, you know that that's a very, very hard thing to say to somebody. I mean, that, so many times I've just like wanted to grab Susan and say, I want you to want me, but I, you just can't say that because that won't make it happen. You usually have to take a person on a journey through darkness, through wilderness, through experiences, through trials, through breakups and reunions and, and give them a taste and take it away. You have to romance them. God is romancing you, and he wants you to want him. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here on Sunday morning. That's why when I preach, I basically all say this, always say the same thing, and we come to the table, <laughs> the banqueting table, and I'm reminded of his love. And we have had an incredible building in which to do that, that God provided for us. And we are about to move to another amazing building that God has provided for us. Like I said in the sermon, the bridegroom has nothing against great bridegrooms and great cake, okay? But if that becomes what we're about, well, forget it, forget the whole thing. But that's not what we're about. So next week, we're gonna meet just down the street, and uh, I don't know how long we're gonna be there, but you need to know this, we're there because he wants us to want him. So every week we'll gather, we'll sing songs about him, we'll pray about him, we'll talk about him. I'll try to convince you he really is cool, even though it's pretty dark here, pretty scary at times. He loves you, and uh, that's what we're doing. So, so right before we go, um, and you can stay standing, I think, let's just, let's just say a prayer, okay? And um, I'll let a few of you pray if you want to. So you can sit down if you want, but let's just thank God for this place and then uh, pray a blessing over the people that will move into this place, because there's another church that's gonna be coming in, and then ask God to meet us, well, he never leaves us, but you know what I mean, at the new place, okay? So Lord God, we thank you for this place. Lord God, I thank you not so much for the bricks and the carpet and my cool little corner office that looks out over the city, I thank you for the story that you wrote here. Lord God, I thank you that though the building passes away, though these earthen vessels pass away, the story that you write is eternal because the story is the logos, the meaning of God, and that's you, Lord Jesus. So I thank you for the story that you have written in this place. And Lord God, I pray that you would continue to write your story with the people that move into this place. And so, Lord, we claim the blood of your covenant over this place. We call on your Holy Spirit to fill this place, uh, to fill up whatever is dark, whatever is evil. We call on your light to send, descend into the darkness below this place and draw everything evil into your presence. And, uh, Lord, seal this place up for your purposes. And so we bless the church that we'll be meeting in this building after we're gone. And, Lord God, we thank you that you go with us that your design from the very beginning was to a tabernacle, a tent, a mobile unit. 
And so, Lord God, we're your tabernacle. We thank you that you go with us to this new place. We thank you for providing uh, for us. And so, Lord Jesus, we offer ourselves to you. So, Lord Jesus, we seal this place up with your spirit. And uh, we thank you for making us your home. You are good. Father, in Jesus' name, we begin to see it. We see you. Amen.